Chapter Six of A Daily Rate by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. It is said that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. It is probably true that he also hies him away to take counsel with his evil angels to see if they cannot by some means overtake that saint in his resolves and endeavors and make him tremble and perhaps fall. It certainly seemed to Celia the next morning as if everything had conspired to make her life hard. In the first place it was raining, a cold, steady drizzle that bade fair to continue all day and for several days if it did not turn into snow. The furnace, none too good at any time, was illy managed. Mrs. Morris usually regulated it herself, but Maggie made a poor hand at it. She chose this morning to forget to see to it at all until the fire had gone out. There was no time to build it up then, for she had breakfast to get for the boarders who must be off to their work at their appointed hours. Celia dressed quickly, for her room was so cold she was in a shiver. With her blue fingers she tried to turn the pages of her Bible to read a few words while she combed her hair, but finally gave it up she was so cold. She was sleepy, too, for she had lost much sleep of late, and it was hard to get up before it was fairly light and hurry around in the cold. Life looked very hard and dreary to her. She thought of Aunt Hannah getting breakfast for Nettie's family and buttoning the children's clothes between times. Somehow the thought of Aunt Hannah weighed heavily upon her this morning. She could not get away from it. It brought a sob in her throat and a pain in her heart. Why did they have to separate? It was cruel that life was so. The tears came to her eyes. She jerked a snarl out and broke two teeth of her comb at the same time. This did not serve to help her temper. She did hate to use a comb with the teeth out, and once out there was no putting them back. Neither could she afford a new comb for some time to come. She glanced at her plain little silver watch and saw that it was later than she usually rose, and she hurried through her toilet as much as possible and ran downstairs to the dining-room. The German stood at the dining-room door, an expression of belligerence on his face and his attitude one of displeasure. He filled up the door so completely that Celia was obliged to ask him to let her pass before he moved. She was indignant at him for this. She found herself likening him to one of the animals condemned in the Bible. It was unchristian, of course, but Celia did not feel in a very sweet spirit this morning. She recalled what Mrs. Morris had said, and wished the German would leave the house. He looked like a man whom it was impossible to please anyway. But she found the cause of his displeasure was that there was no breakfast forthcoming as yet. Mr. Knowles came down, greeted her pleasantly, looked at the empty table and the clock, filled his pocket with some crackers on a plate there, and remarked that he guessed he would skip, that it was as much as his place was worth if he did not get to the store on time, and he would have to run all the way to the car to make it now it was so late. Celia felt indignant that this young man was obliged to go to a hard day's work unfed. But there was nothing to be done now, he must go. It was the hard fate of the wage-earner. He must be on time if the house fell. She went to the kitchen door and peered in. Maggie was slamming about in a grand rage. 
The biscuits she was baking were not even beginning to brown yet, as Celia saw by a glimpse into the oven door when Maggie opened it and slammed it shut. There was some greasy-looking hash cooking slowly. It did not look as if it ever would be done at the present rate it was cooking. The stove looked sulky, and the ashes were not yet taken up. "'Maggie,' she said, "'can I help you get something on the table? These people all have to go to work, and so do I. If we can't eat in five minutes, we'll have to go without.' "'Well, then, go without,' said Maggie, rising in a towering passion. "'I'm sure it won't hurt you fine folks once in a while. I never hired out to do everything, and I ain't responsible. I'll get the breakfast as soon as I can, and not a bit sooner, and you can get out of my kitchen. I don't want you bothering round. I get all flustered with so many folks coming after me. Go on out now, and wait till your breakfast's ready.' and tell the rest I won't cook any dinner for him if a soul comes in this kitchen again. Celia retreated, indignant and outraged. To be spoken to in such a manner, when she was but offering help, was an insult. It was a peculiarity of hers that when she felt angry, the tears would come to her eyes. They came now. It was exasperating. She went quickly to the window to hide them, and looked out in the dim little brick alley that ran between the houses, and watched the rain drop all over the bricks. There was a blank brick wall of the next house opposite her, and a little further toward the front she could see a window and someone standing at it. She turned quickly away again. There was no refuge there. Taking in at a glance the table with its unbrushed crumbs, and the dishes of uncooked hash and underdone biscuits that Maggie was just bringing in, she resolved to follow the example of Mr. Knowles and take some crackers. Then, seizing her hat and coat from the hall rack, where she had put them on coming downstairs, she started for the store. It was a long, cold walk, and she got very wet, but she did not feel justified in spending the five cents which would have carried her there. In her present mood, she had no faith in Uncle Abner's fortune. It would probably turn out to be some poor land somewhere which would never be worth a cent. That was the kind of inheritance which usually came to anyone in their family, like the lot in a new town out west that was left to Aunt Hannah by her eldest brother, where the city authorities compelled property holders to pave the streets and pay large taxes, and where there were no purchasers. Such inheritances one was better off without. She felt very bitter in her heart. As she walked along in the rain, she remembered that she had forgotten to kneel by her bedside in prayer before she left her room that morning. It was so cold and late. She knew that must be the reason why she felt so cross and unreasonable, and she tried to pray as she walked along in the rain, but there were many things to distract her thoughts, and she had to watch carefully that she did not run into someone with her umbrella turned down in front of her to keep off the driving rain. She thought of Aunt Hannah again, now probably washing the breakfast dishes, or doing some sewing or ironing, and she sighed and felt that earth was wet and cold and dreary. Halfway to the store she encountered a little newsboy who followed by her side and begged her to buy a paper. He looked hungry. His feet were out at the toes from his shoes, much too large. Celia had no money to buy a paper, and she answered the boy in a decided negative that made him turn hopelessly away. 
it made her cross to see his need when she had no power to help him. She realized how cross her voice had been, and that vexed her. Then she blindly stepped into a mud puddle and splashed the water over the tops of her shoes. She shivered as she felt the dampness through the thin leather of her boot, and wondered what she would do when the inevitable sore throat, which always with her resulted from getting her feet wet, arrived. And so she hurried on, tugging after her the heavy cross which she had carefully made that morning for herself to carry, out of bits of her own and other people's troubles, and letting it spoil the sweet peace God had sent her, and soil the clean heart he had washed from sin for her. It was too bad. Her guardian angel pitied her that she would so soon forget her high resolves and her heavenly father. Matters were no better when she reached the store. One of the girls who belonged at the ribbon counter with her was sick. Celia had to do her duty, and the girls also. This might not have been so bad if she had been left to herself, but the head of that department, a young woman with a sour expression and disappointed eyes, was also out of temper, and did her ordering in an exceedingly disagreeable manner. She found a great deal of fault, and kept demanding of Celia more than she could well accomplish in a given time. Celia had hoped it would not be a busy day on account of the rain, but on the contrary every woman in town seemed to be in need of ribbon, and to have hit upon that particular rainy morning in which to shop, thinking doubtless that the others would stay at home and leave the store to her. When the noon hour came, Celia was cut down to half-time on account of the rush, and obliged to take a few precious minutes of that in putting up some ribbons left carelessly on the counter by another saleswoman who had gone to her luncheon leaving them there. To the young girl new to her work, and fresh from a home where every necessary comfort at least had been hers, it was a long, hard day, and she looked forward with no hope of a let-up to the evening that was to follow. She grew crosser as the day began to wane, and she grew hungry, and then faint, and then lost both those feelings, and settled down to a violent headache. It was then that a new cause for trouble loomed up before her imagination. What if she should get sick? Who would take care of her, and how should she live? Aunt Hannah would have to come, and what an expense that would be. No, Aunt Hannah could not come. There was no money anywhere to pay her fare, or her board when she got there, and she was bound to stay with Nettie and Hiram as long as they were supporting her. She would have to get along without telling Aunt Hannah. What would become of her? Oh, why, of course, she would have to go to the hospital among strangers and be nursed, and perhaps die, and Aunt Hannah never hear, and then worry and worry, and no one would tell her. It was just in the midst of these thoughts that there came the clear voice of the floor-walker, "'Miss Murray, will you step to the office a moment? There is a message there for you, a special delivery letter, I believe.' With her heart throbbing violently at thought of the possibilities contained in a special delivery letter, she walked the length of the long store. Aunt Hannah must be sick, and they had sent for her. Surely they would do that if Aunt Hannah should be so ill she needed care, for Nettie would never care for her, and was no nurse, and hated sick rooms. Besides, to be perfectly honest, Nettie would have enough to do in caring for her home and children. 
There was no hospital in the little town where Hiram lived, so he would, of course, rather pay her fare and keep her while she did the nursing, rather than to hire someone to care for Aunt Hannah. All this reasoning went clearly through her brain, as she walked swiftly in the direction of the office. It seemed as if the writing of her name on the receipt book was one of the longest actions she ever performed, and her hand trembled so when she retired to the little cloakroom to read her letter, that she could scarcely open the envelope, nor take in at first that the letter bore Raleigh and Brown's printed heading. And then she read just a few lines from them, asking her to call once more upon them, and as soon as possible. She went back to her place among the ribbons, feeling almost angry with Raleigh and Brown that they had frightened her so, and yet relieved that there was nothing the matter with Aunt Hannah. It was nearly five o'clock, and the crowd of women who were doing rainy day shopping had gone home. The rain was pouring down harder than ever. The store was comparatively empty. Perhaps she might get away for a few moments now, she would ask. Permission was granted her, as she had had only half her noon hour, and she hurried up to the dark little office again. She found that she was not too late, for Mr. Raleigh had not yet gone home, though he had his overcoat on as if to depart. It appeared that he wished to ask a few more questions to establish certain facts. Celia answered them as best she could, and then as he seemed to be through with her, she asked timidly, "'Would you be so kind as to tell me what this is all about, anyway? You said there was property. If it should turn out to be mine, what would it be?' I suppose you do not mind giving me a general idea of that, do you? He looked at her almost kindly under his shaggy brows. Why, no, child, he said. That's perfectly proper, of course. Why, I haven't the exact figures in my head, but it's several thousands, well invested, and an old farm up in New York State that's well rented. There would be enough to give a pretty good income every year, you know, and if you left the investments as they are, it would be a continuous one, for they are not likely to fail or fall through. Then, too, there is a considerable accumulation owing to the doubt about the heir. I hope you'll turn out to be that heir, and I have no doubt you will. Good afternoon. Celia tripped down the dark old staircase as if it were covered with the softest carpet ever made. Several thousands! What wealth! What luxury! She had wished for one single thousand— and her father had sent her not one, but many. For she began to believe now that the money was hers. All the evidence seemed to point that way. The lawyer seemed to be convinced, and it needed only the coming of a few documents in possession of her uncle Joseph's old lawyer to corroborate what she had told him. She felt pretty sure that it was all true. And here she had been cross and growling all day, and worse than that, she had been carrying crosses not meant for her shoulders, and probably leaving undone the things God had laid out for her to do. What wickedness had been hers! Only last night she had knelt in earnest consecration, and now today she had fallen so low as almost to forget that she had a father whose dear child she was, and who was caring for her. Could she not retrieve some of the lost day? She had but one hour left in the store— she would try what she could do. She smiled on the beggar child, who stood looking wistfully in at the pretty things in the store window as she passed into her work. 
When she reached the ribbon counter again, she found the head of the department looking very tired and complaining of a headache. There were other burdens besides her own she could bear. She might offer to do her work for her and let her rest, and she could bring her a glass of water. It was not her business to put up certain ribbons not in her own case, but she could do it for the other girl who was absent and save the head girl. As she made her fingers fly among the bright silks and satins, she wondered if there were more burdens for her to bear for others when she reached the boarding-house, and whether Mrs. Morris would be better to-night and able to sit up and direct things a little, and then there came to her mind the joyous thought that perhaps she was to have the means soon to make that house permanently better in some ways, and help its inmates. How light her heart and her shoulders felt now that she had laid down that heavy, self-imposed cross! It was wonderful! Oh, why could she not learn to trust her master? The verse of a loved hymn came, and hummed itself over in her mind. Fearest sometimes that thy father hath forgot, when the clouds around thee gather, doubt him not. Always hath the daylight broken, always hath he comfort spoken, better hath he been for years than thy fears. End of chapter 6